0: You're listening to Policy, Guns & Money, your fortnightly podcast on all things defence and strategy. In this episode, can the US afford great power competition in the Indo-Pacific? Marcus talks to three experts from the United States Studies Centre on their new report on America's military primacy in the Indo-Pacific and the future of balance of power in the region.
1: We take a view that it is possible and indeed desirable to secure a favourable balance of power in Asia, or indeed a balance of power in Asia, were countries that have a shared interest in maintaining the existing regional order and maintaining uh, an equilibrium between China and others in the region to pull together.
0: Australian forces in the Strait of Hormuz. Two of our grumpy strategists offer their different views on the PM's announcement that the ADF will join the US-led mission of protecting freedom of navigation in the Gulf region.
2: And the government has been concerned uh, with incidents involving shipping in the Straits of Hormuz over the past few months.
0: But first up, our cyber team have been digging into the data released by Twitter on the China-linked disinformation campaign targeting the Hong Kong protests. Elise and Tom talk through their takeaways so far.
2: Okay, g'day, Elise. Hi, Tom. So, the other day, Twitter and Facebook made a statement that I thought was pretty sensational. What happened?
3: Um, So essentially what happened is that Twitter and Facebook both announced uh, more or less simultaneously that they'd taken down networks of um, coordinated inauthentic behavior um, emanating from China and in relation to the Hong Kong protests. Um, Twitter also released a really large data set of both accounts and tweets that they took down. Facebook, unfortunately, has not released any data um, and they took down a a much smaller account and they were sort of tipped off by Twitter. So this is really um, an investigation which has originated with Twitter.
2: Yeah, what really surprised me was how strongly both Twitter and Facebook stated that it was aligned with the Chinese government. Uh, I think Facebook said links to individuals in the Chinese government and and Twitter's phrasing was similarly strong. And I thought it was really significant that it was the first time that the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese state, has been found to be playing in Western media uh, in that sort of deliberate disinformation, covert way. And now we spent literally probably a day now looking at the data. What have you found that you think is interesting?
3: I think there's a a few key points which are are really significant. Um, I think the first and probably the most obvious one is that the vast majority of accounts involved in this takedown uh, appear to be spam or bot accounts. Um, and so you can buy um, spam or bot accounts if you want to sell your, you know, you want to sell your Nike shoes or if you want to sell, a lot of them have been used to sell porn in the past um, or they're sort of used to promote football clubs or whatever. You can you can buy bots for that purpose. And it sort of appears that what has happened in this case is that someone linked to the Chinese government, and like you, I, I think that's a really interesting point. And i I'd be quite curious to know more about, because they they didn't give us a lot of detail about how they know that those things are are linked to the actual government. So I'd be quite curious to know. But it it appears that someone linked to the Chinese government has bought a a number of these bots and started using them to push anti-Hong Kong protest messages.
2: So do we know when these accounts were hired or purchased or stolen or...
3: Um, from the pattern of activity, it appears that they were bought sometime or repurposed uh, and reactivated sometime around sort of May to July. Um, and we know this because their, their activity corresponds with key dates in the Hong Kong protests. So we see um, the start of the, the Chinese language propaganda targeted at the Hong Kong protesters um, around about June 11th, which is when the the first protesters blocked the roads around um, the, the government buildings in Hong Kong because the debate about the extradition bill was taking place. Um, and then we see the English language anti-Hong Kong content also sparked up around a little, a few days later on sort of July first, which is when the protesters stormed the Legislative Building. Um, and I think the the fact that we've seen this kind of recycling of old marketing and spam bots, sort of, and that it ties in so closely um, with those key dates, sort of suggests that this is a, a reactive tactic rather than sort of a campaign that's been planned well in advance in in the way that we saw, for example, in the 2016 US presidential elections, where they established specific dedicated accounts months in advance and ran them through to make them look authentic. Um, this seems like a much more hastily put together effort.
2: One of the things that I'm always curious about is how the platforms, Twitter and Facebook in this case, decide that uh, an account is related. So you showed me some correspondence you had with one of those accounts. What made you reach out to them and what do you think?
3: Uh, well, so when, when I was going through the data set I found a couple of p- accounts that just didn't quite seem to fit and, and I sort of was able to connect those accounts to a website and then that website to an email address um, and so I got in touch with the the owners of those accounts and just asked them what happened es- essentially and how how their accounts got messed up um, got mixed up into these data sets and they don't know so th- apparently those Twitter accounts were were suspended back in May before the Hong Kong protest started um, these people are they are real people and they have no connection as far as I can tell. Um, Certainly they say they have no connection to the Chinese government. Um, Their theory is that their accounts may have been swept up in this because they were using... Um, specific keywords. For example, they, they did sometimes talk about China. They did sometimes talk about cyber issues. So that's their theory. But yeah, it's, it's difficult to say. And it's not necessarily clear from the data set, uh, at least the, the amount of research we've been able to do in the limited time that we've had, um, exactly how these um, accounts have been identified by Twitter.
2: It is a sort of article of faith that we're taking that these accounts somehow are, are related. I, I did see a tweet in reply to, to something you'd said online. What about all the free Chinese people who actually are expressing an opinion? Why couldn't all these accounts be just normal people tweeting?
3: I mean, I think it is actually possible that some of them are normal people tweeting. Um, But I think, for example, going back to the example I used earlier of the the account that was tweeting in English about football in 2011 and then sort of all of a sudden wakes up and is fluent in Chinese in 2019 and very passionate about um, Hong Kong politics. I think that is sort of pushing the bounds of credibility in terms of claiming that that is um, an authentic Chinese voice.
2: What happens next? It's clearly a critical issue for the Chinese government. They can't have dissent in Hong Kong and they're doing everything they can to quash it. Is this the beginning of the end for Chinese involvement in Twitter? Are they going to say, oh, it was hopeless, we got caught, we'll never do that again, it didn't achieve anything, or is it the beginning of them reaching out onto Western platforms, do you think?
3: I think it's very much the beginning of them reaching out, and I think there's going to be a significant backlash against this very public action by Twitter. Um, I think already in in just the last 24 hours, I've been watching a number of accounts that have either been very recently created or that have very recently woken up from you know a, a long sleep. So like those accounts that we we saw taken down earlier, they've been dormant for a long period, and then all of a sudden they've um, sprung into life and they're they're fluent in Chinese and very passionate about Hong Kong protests. So I, I think we're going to see a A significant spike in activity following these takedowns um, and yeah I would expect it to grow in the future.
2: Yeah I'm inclined to agree I think that the way bureaucracies work is that someone has a brilliant idea they try it it doesn't work and they use that to get more funding and more effort to do it better next time and certainly if it's worth doing because it's critical for the survival of the state it's bloody well worth doing.
3: Yeah, and I think that's one of the really interesting questions here which comes back to sort of how Twitter and Facebook have made the decision that these accounts are linked to the Chinese government. What's the mechanism of coordination or control behind all of these different accounts? How bureaucratized is it? is it? Is it something that is sort of being done literally out of the government office somewhere or is it a little bit more outsourced than that? I think is a really interesting question.
2: Yeah, so one of the little nuggets that Twitter gave away is some of these tweets were coming from a specific or specific IP addresses from behind the Great Firewall, that implies that there's some sort of organisation that can actually switch off the firewall for a particular IP address that implies involvement of the state.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting and intriguing question. Um, And, you know, Twitter and Facebook, if you're listening, we would would love to see that data.
2: (laughs) Okay, thanks very much, Elise.
3: Thank you.
0: This week, Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced that Australia will contribute to the military effort combating Iran's actions in the Strait of Hormuz. The PM said the recent disruptions to shipping in the Gulf region was a threat to Australia's national interests.
2: This destabilising behaviour is a threat to Australian interests in the region, particularly our enduring interest in the security of global sea lanes uh, of communication. 15 to 16% of crude oil and 25 to 30% of refined oil destined for Australia transits through the Straits of Hormuz. So it is a potential threat to our economy.
0: Here to talk through how did we get here and what does this all mean are two of our grumpy strategists, Marcus and Malcolm.
4: Hi Malcolm. So yesterday the Prime Minister announced we're uh, getting back involved in the Middle East. We're sending a task force to assist in the Straits of Hormuz
5: to keep the oil flowing yeah, well, well, we I'm kind of, kind of ambivalent about this. What's your view? Well, we kind of never really left, to be honest. I mean, this deployment is part of Operation Two, which has been going on for some years, and the, the sort of the historical uh, ancestors of that were um, the sort of the original deployment that the Hawke government made uh, prior to the outbreak of the 1991 Persian Gulf War. Uh, so mm-hmm. you know, this well, has a long historical legacy. But I thought we were resetting back to the Pacific. Well, we are meant to be doing that, but... Uh, in a discussion I was having today, uh, you know, one of the challenges in doing that is that um, there's always going to be the next crisis in the Middle East that we have to think about that we can't ignore, that maybe our alliance relationships with the US, you know, force us to think in terms of deploying, and so we're forced down this path of getting involved in the Middle East yet again, yes. whether we want it or not.
4: So, you know, I know you've you've read the latest United States Study Centre report, which basically says the US itself should be getting out of the mm-hmm. Middle East. It needs to kind of da- downsize its, its international commitments. So, you know, there is the line that, you know, friends don't let friends drink drive, and mm-hmm. so maybe... You know, as a friend of the U.S., we should be encouraging them not to do stupid yep. stuff like getting back involved well, the back question in the
5: Middle East. The question in my mind is, how do we do that? Because there is a real challenge here in the sense of uh, of an Iran that has threatened to close the Straits of Hormuz, uh, that is interfering in commercial shipping uh, uh, through the Straits of Hormuz and out of the Persian Gulf, and that oil lifeline and that energy lifeline is critical both for. Uh, ourselves and for other states in the region, maybe not so much these days for the US because the US is more self sufficient in energy. So how do we square that circle in terms of trying to get the Americans to focus on what they need to focus on, which is China, uh, whilst at the same time, you know, ignoring the very real risks and threats being posed to international maritime shipping out of the Persian Gulf. I mean, how did we get here?
4: You know, there was a perfectly good, well, I think pretty good. I know you have different views, but a pretty good arrangement with Iran to Mm. put its nuclear weapons program on hold that President Trump walked away from against the advice of... America's international partners, and really that's that's how we got here. It's through America doing stupid stuff, you could argue. Yeah,
5: I, I, would, I would agree broadly in the sense that um, I have my misgivings about the JCPOA, primarily because I think that, It didn't um, prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons at the end of the agreement when it sunsered. I mean, it was a a short, medium-term solution, but what what solution lasts for all time? Yeah, you're making a valid point in the sense that there was no perfect solution here. Um, If Iran wanted nukes, it was going to get nukes, uh, one way or the other. And I suppose that the Trump administration would have been much more sensible to hang on to the JCPOA. Uh, but start to think about negotiating additional agreements with Iran that close some of those gaps and mm-hmm. loopholes in the in the uh, mm-hmm. Iran deal. I mean, one of the seems to me one of the big ironies here
4: is that the US. With its, uh, you know, I guess the redevelopment of its own oil industry through fracking in the Great Plains is that it's less dependent on Middle Eastern oil than it has been Mm -hmm. in generations. So it does actually now have the kind of breathing room to downscale its commitments to the Middle East. And yet it seems to be stuck in these old mindsets, these old habits of just re-injecting itself into these essentially intractable,
5: endless kinds of commitments. And I think you can trace that back to sort of the impact of 9-11 on US strategic culture. Uh, Americans these days, when you talk to them about foreign policy and defence threats and so forth, they still invariably go to terrorism as the number one threat. In actual fact, uh, the threat is China. Uh, and so the, the US strategic policy community understands this, but the average person in the street, the voters, still think in terms of terrorism. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know the Trump administration is kind of resonating with that and saying, well, look, we have to be involved with mm-hmm. the, the Middle East to deal with the terrorist threat. I mean, what, another irony is that the US isn't particularly
4: dependent on Middle East and oil, but we still are to mm. some degree. So at some level, we're in this situation now, you probably have to go. At this point, but the bigger issue is, you know, what can we do to increase our energy security? And it's no secret that our oil stocks are well below kind of international benchmarks. And we've actually approached the US to help us out there. So it's a bit tricky to go to the US and say, "Help us out with your oil reserves." By mm. the way, we're not going to help in the Straits yep. of Hormuz. So we're kind of in a bit of a strategic catch-22 there, but uh, what can we do to kind of increase our oil security... Look,
5: I think you know uh, building up that the reserve to ninety days is an obvious, you know, starter. Uh, and secondly, uh, looking at how we can move away from dependence on fossil fuels to the to a large extent is a good thing to do given climate change.
4: Moving away from fossil fuels, Malcolm. Yes, you're pretty old school. I'm surprised you're well. Interested you know, in
5: it. I, I personally favour nuclear energy, so I'm not going completely hippie green here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, you know, I think that. I think it's a good move for us to get away from fossil fuels for climate change reasons and also for strategic reasons. Mm.
4: But that would indicate that um, we actually do need a strategic energy policy that uh, lays out a map to transition from where we are now to what comes next. Now, what comes next, we can argue about. But at the moment, we don't really seem to have any real strategic policy there. And you could argue that that's just as important to our security as Ships, planes, tanks, guns, and the rest of it. Exactly. And
5: I think this is indicative of successive Australian government's failure to have strategic vision and strategic imagination in terms of how they shape policy. You know, it, When you look at our defence policy, invariably, it's sort of like a repetition, a repeating cycle of what we've done in the past, that's what we're going to do in the future. And that's the sort of mindset that we have at the moment. And I think we need to show more vision, not only in defence, but also foreign policy and also energy policy and so forth.
4: Well, I would say imagination seems to be a fairly limited commodity, both in American government circles at the moment, and unfortunately to some degree here, but we can always hope for innovation. We can hope for innovation, absolutely.
0: Marcus recently sat down with Ashley Townsend, Brendan Thomas Noon and Matilda Stewart from the United States Studies Centre to discuss their new report, Averting Crisis, American Strategy, Military Spending and Collective Defence in the Indo-Pacific.
4: Well, congratulations, guys, on a excellent report. It's a very impressive piece of work and really well researched, and I think it's a great uh, contribution to the conversation. But the main sort of takeaway I got from it is really that the US is almost a hollow superpower. Behind the facade, US power is really hollowing out. Is that an accurate uh, assessment, and what can be done about it? The United States
1: is facing a serious crisis in its uh, global defense strategy. And although it doesn't mean that America is an entirely hollow great power, it means the United States is no longer the superpower it once was, and is in the throes of a serious problem of strategic insolvency. And in the report, what we try and tease out is the drivers of this problem of strategic insolvency and the reasons why Australians and others in the the Indo-Pacific ought to expect it to continue. And they are that the United States' global commitments are no longer... Um, achievable with the resources that it has at its disposal to execute those commitments in terms of its defense budget, in terms of its military capabilities, and in terms of its political willingness to make hard choices to align strategy with resources. And until that happens, um, the United States will continue to be ill prepared for the sorts of great power challenges that both Washington and Canberra have identified will characterize our future.
4: Mm-hmm. Now, Matilda, you've done some great budget analysis in here. How bad is the US budget situation overall? And how bad is the US defence budget?
6: Yeah, so I think um, the US defence budget has faced two major challenges over the past decade. The first is kind of constrained funding as a result of the Budget Control Act, and the second is delayed and unpredictable funding as a result of partisan dynamics within Congress. The Budget Control Act was a deficit reduction plan that placed mandatory spending caps on defence and non-defense parts of the discretionary budget over a 10-year period, so expiring in 2021. And this has created a really difficult situation for the Pentagon where they've seen 539 billion um, loss in purchasing power between 2012 and 2019. What it's also done is created a lot of difficulties within the budget process in Congress. Congress has acted to raise the spending caps in a series of two-year deals. But what this has done is created significant uncertainty for the Pentagon in terms of how they allocate resources and plan over the long term. This has been made worse by continued delays to the appropriations process within Congress due to political brinksmanship and other partisan deal making. Um, the 2019 defence budget was only the first defence budget to be passed on time in a decade.
4: So there seems to be some serious problems around the US budgeting process, but is it um, reasonable to expect actual further significant increases to the defence budget at this point, noting the overall pressures on the US budget?
6: Yeah, so we've seen a deal made in 2018 and a deal made this year to raise the defence budget by 11% in real terms in terms of the 2018 defence budget. I think that there are a few political dynamics that cause these deals to occur that are unlikely to occur in the future, raising questions over whether these increases are going to be able to be sustained over the long term. The first is in 2018, you saw Republicans having unified control of Congress and were really keen to deliver a key election promise of President Trump. Democrats also got a really good deal out of that spending agreement because they were able to raise domestic spending at a comparable amount from a position of relative legislative weakness. In 2019's deal, you saw a lot of momentum coming from both sides of politics who wanted to see the final two years of the BCA seen out, and therefore they created a deal to make that happen. I think in terms of the future, there's kind of broader fiscal pressures facing the United States that are going to make any increases in the future difficult to achieve. One of these factors is the rising national debt and federal deficit, which total... Interest payments on the national debt are due to exceed total national defence spending by 2023. You've also got the expiration of the Budget Control Act in 2021, which I think will restart the national conversation on any deficit reduction measures into the future. The discretionary part of the budget, which funds national defence, is shrinking as an overall portion of the federal budget. Mandatory spending, on the other hand, which funds social programs such as Medicare and Social Security, is increasing and will continue to increase into the future due to an ageing population.
4: Okay, so it seems that the takeaway from that is there's long-term pressures on the overall US budget. uh, And so we're probably not going to see growing increases to the defence budget in the long term. So Brendan, the the issue really seems to be to spend the money that they've got better. And you seem to have some ideas on how the US can invest its defence
7: budget more productively yeah, thank you, Marcus. Um, so, the U.S. joint force has really uh, been suffering from basically 20 years of overuse. Uh, we've seen uh, this most acutely represented in the U.S. Air Force, where the U.S. Air Force has essentially been involved in a number of operations around the world since the early 1990s. Um, in fact, some Uh, U.S. Air Force commanders have testified in Congress that they're lamenting the fact that they've been conducting essentially 26 years of continuous operations around the world. Um, And so what's happened is that you have uh, an air force that's aging because a lot of the money that has been spent over the last 10 years or 15 years in operations in Iraq and Afghanistan have really been used in uh, funding those military operations rather than being reinvested into producing or building new aircraft or recapitalizing the fleet. Um, so there are new ideas about how to reposition uh, the Air Force and the Navy uh, in terms of uh, overcoming not only some of the operational challenges that we see in the Indo-Pacific, but trying to challenge or or overcome some of these uh, structural issues in terms of their internal um, spending on maintenance and support for this aging aircraft. Um, one are they, is: Are they buying the right things? No, uh, no, they're not. So the uh, Part of the NDS and the National Defense agency that has come out is really trying to reposition the uh, joint force for a high-low mix. Um, essentially, one of the problems has been using military equipment that has been designed for superpower war in the Cold War to fight terrorists in the Middle East. So they have been, uh, for instance, there was a famous case of a terrorist camp in Libya being uh, a, and a B-2 bomber that was really designed to penetrate Soviet airspace being used to bomb these uh, this camp uh, and the operating cost of that that bomber is astronomical. So they're really trying to position these forces for having more high end capability to uh, deter a great power conflict with China, but also having the right set of capabilities at the lower end of the matrix, which are cheaper, which can be used uh, more easily, and which are attributable. And that means that that's not a big deal if they get if they're destroyed um, at the low end of the, of the mix. And there are several programs in the in the running.
4: So, there, there seems to be some messages there for US policymakers, but what are the key takeaways or messages for Australian policymakers?
1: So, in the report, we argue a number of ways for the Australian government to consider managing the problem of American strategic insolvency. Uh, the first of those is to not contribute to it ourselves. Um, Australia has been involved in Middle East in contingencies for almost two decades alongside US forces. There have been important alliance management reasons for that and important contributions to global order as well. But it is not the case that the Middle East is our most important strategic uh, environment. Australia has spent in the vicinity of $16 billion in that time on operations in the Middle East and less than $4 billion in the Indo-Pacific, so that needs to be reversed. We would call for the Australian government to reprioritise and rebalance its forces, its operational spend and its strategic attention to our front yard in the Indo-Pacific as a first order of priority. In addition to that, um, Australia, alongside other like-minded regional countries that have serious military capability, albeit not the order of a great power, ought to do more to aggregate and work together to maintain a collective balance of power in the Indo-Pacific. And in the report, we look to the projections for Australian and Japanese anti-submarine warfare assets, as well as Australian and Japanese attack submarine inventories. And we demonstrate that really in these two areas, Australia and Japan have a lot to contribute. They're also areas where the United States may well face shortfalls in the 2030s and so on. So are we talking about
4: bringing Japan into ANZUS, going that far, or...?
1: We're not talking about a formal alliance structure, and for many political reasons a NATO-like structure wouldn't work in Asia, but what we are talking about is this. No country has more of an interest in maintaining um, a stable and favourable balance of power, as our white paper suggests, than Australia, than Japan, than those who would be have their security um, room, their strategic environment and their room to manoeuvre constrained than countries in the region. The United States will continue to and has demonstrated a willingness to maintain a considerable role in the Indo-Pacific, but they can't do this alone and nor should we ask the United States to shoulder the burden for the Indo-Pacific. We can't expect that they will be able to do so for political reasons. So really it's incumbent on balances like Australia, Japan, key Southeast Asian countries like Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam and others to work together
4: hopefully with the assistance of India in time. So the key message seems to be we want the US to prioritise the Asia-Pacific, but its friends and partners here need to do more and step up to show the US that they're not in this alone. That's right. And working together,
1: the picture is not as grim as if we look at what one country alone can do that has
7: overstretched global responsibilities and a political environment that can't strip those back. Just to add what to Ash was saying, um, there are real things that Japan and Australia can do in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, there are examples of this during the Cold War um, in terms of Japan and the United States cooperating on anti-submarine warfare operations, for instance, in Northeast Asia, where there were geographical uh, operational areas where the responsibility would be divvied up so that the U.S. wasn't necessarily burdened or Japan wasn't necessarily burdened in tracking Soviet SSBNs, for instance, just as one example. There's others where there were Um, ideas around Japan protecting U.S. bases uh, to a certain degree to allow those U.S. forces stationed there to concentrate on offensive operations if required. And I think it needs to be reiterated, this is uh, all about conventional deterrence, not necessarily planning for um, a combat operation or or an aggressive military kind of posture. It's really just about ensuring that there are operational problems for China if they do um, decide to issue a fait accompli along the first island chain. Um, and there are uh, capabilities that Australia and Japan and the United States in combination can make it difficult for China to execute something like that.
4: Mm-hmm. I know you've been doing a lot of media uh, appearances. What's been resonating with the media and what's been resonating with the public? What are they taking away from this report?
1: It's clear that many Australians are fed up with our sustained and increased investment in the Middle East, and that there isn't to our minds, and from the interactions we've had, a broad appetite for Australia to really take part in yet another and this time safeguarding um, maritime supply lines in the Straits of Hormuz, another engagement in the Middle East. That's been the story that many have led with here, and for reasons that I think are perfectly understandable. The problem in the Strait of Hormuz, if indeed it does produce itself, is one that's entirely avoidable. The Trump administration has utterly mishandled the diplomatic process. In fact, it's withdrawn from a diplomatic process with Iran. There was a perfectly good deal to prevent Iran having an incentive to do what is unacceptable, which just to challenge maritime shipping. But that's a problem that can be solved at the table. It's not a problem that needs to be solved with commitments on the water. And so I think that that's something that resonates with Australians. I think another point that resonates, Australia can do something about its strategic environment. Hugh White has recently put forward a very clear argument for why Australia needs to focus on continental defence and the defence of its near abroad in terms of being able to maintain and secure its own strategic environment in an era where he believes the United States will ultimately retrench from Asia or be a much smaller power in the region. We don't take that view. We take a view that it is possible and indeed desirable to secure a favourable balance of power in Asia or indeed a balance of power in Asia where countries that have a shared interest in maintaining the existing regional order and maintaining uh, an equilibrium between China and others in the region to pull together. And that's what we advocate for. So I think there is a lot of interest in that argument. Um, People do want to see uh, an opportunity and a path forward for
4: creative defence policy in this country. Okay, well, thank you, Ashley, Brendan, Matilda. It's a great piece of work. Once again, I congratulate you on it. I think it's really going to help support great conversations into the future, and I'd like to thank you for visiting ASPE. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks, Marcus.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Policy, Guns & Money. If you're one of our regular listeners, apologies for the sound quality last week. We've just got some new gear, and hopefully you'll enjoy a crisper sound in this episode. As always, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes as any feedback helps us out. You can also tweet us at aspie underscore org and if you really enjoyed this episode, tell a fellow Defence Wonk about it. We'll be back in two weeks.